Chapter 27, verse 39 to 44. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. That's it. Nice short little passage. Let's pray that prayer we pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, last week we we talked a a good bit about whaling and uh, shipwrecks and cannibalism and... uh, Jacob insisted on doing further research over the course of the week, so we watched Moby Dick, I think, on Wednesday night, and um, that was a fine performance by Gregory Peck. Spoiler alert for those of you who are planning to read that book this winter, everybody dies. Um, So Captain Pollard, who we talked about last week, he has that much of an edge on Captain Ahab anyway, but in in our Bible story, nobody is supposed to die. We've had that, we have it on Paul's authority and, and, and God's promise that He's going to bring these guys through. And when we left off last week, we left our heroes uh, anchored near some rocks as the day was dawning, but we did not see them safely to shore. I chose to leave us all in limbo a little bit and decided to focus a whole message today instead on the actual shipwreck. Uh, Shipwrecks are fascinating to me. Uh, You know, there's a common saying that, you know, nobody can look away from a train wreck, right? Uh, We use that figuratively all the time. Uh, It's exactly how we ended up with a Netflix account, uh, because Ken and Denise told us that we needed to watch Tiger King precisely because it was like watching a slow-motion train wreck. (laughs) They said, you just can't look away, and they were exactly right. There's a a famous picture, I don't know if any of you have ever seen it, of a train that, that crashed through the wall of a Paris train station and then like crashed onto the ground, and it's just like hanging out the out the side of the wall there. It's a really funny picture. My dad had a print of it hanging in the dining room. It's like, yeah, it's a sick sense of humor, but um, he was kind of a train guy. But train wrecks are almost fun in a sense, as long as you're not in them and it's not happening to you. But shipwrecks are equally mesmerizing. And if you don't believe me, just look up the gross totals for Titanic from 1997. You know, I had a crush on a girl that year that I was in a class with, and uh, she had seen that movie in the theaters no less than 17 times. It's probably the single biggest reason it didn't work out between us. But anyway, um, so shipwrecks are just as mesmerizing, I think, as train wrecks. The only difference is we don't usually get to capture shipwrecks on film, or even in in print most of the time, because it tends to kill everybody involved. Um, but part of what makes today's story mesmerizing is not only that everybody ends up making it, but it's, it's the sort of inevitability of it all. It's, it's, it's as sure as the sinking of the Titanic. We knew this was coming, and it's part of the plan, and yet, in the moment, it all looks rather chaotic, right? 
And, and one would think that God, being sovereign and all, right, might have had a more orderly plan for getting these guys to the shore, right? Uh, but this is what he had told Paul. Look, you, you got to crash to survive. There's no avoiding it. And, and I believe that this is actually a consequence for their foolishness in not listening to Paul and leaving fair havens to begin with. In other words, faith will not save you from the earthly consequences of your stupidity. Amen? And I thought of it in this context as well. How many of you have ever had the experience of being spanked as a child? Well, that explains a lot. Okay. Um, uh, no, I did too. My dad wasn't a spanker, but he used to hang all his belts on his bedroom door. He used to hang them on the key that was in the, in the door there, and I don't know why. It's just what he did. And I can still remember hearing the belts rattle when Mom went up to pick one out for us. And uh, they say you should never spank in anger, Right. I've never really been sure how that's supposed to work, because uh, I'm pretty sure mom was mad when the belt came out, and, um, and you know, she also had a red plastic spatula that she used, alternatively, that was in the kitchen, and uh, that's because it's best to have tools available in every room if possible, because spankings in my house growing up, they were an impulse decision, okay? Uh, it's when the spirit moved you, you had to have the tool ready. <laughs> my sister inherited that spatula, she moved it, it's like an antique in the family, it's kind of weird. Um, but my wife is a very different kind of spanker uh, because she's very good at the unemotional spanking. And that can really throw you because she has a way of giving you a lecture and I think the kids maybe start to think that maybe she'll settle for that and that if you say sorry and you really mean it, maybe the inevitable spanking will be forgotten. But my wife doesn't forget, see. The spanking is inevitable. There is no avoiding it. In my house, justice is more certain than dinner. Now, I say all this because last week we left our heroes in a strangely peaceful place, uh, but like my wife's calm, soothing lectures, uh, this was only the quiet before the crash. The storm was still raging when we left off, right? And, and the ship was in, a, it's in bad shape. They're surrounded by rocks at this point, and God has told them they needed to crash in order to be saved, and yet they were in much better spirits at the end of that passage, largely because Paul had done two things. He had given God's word that they would all live, and he had fed them. And God's promises on a full stomach can do a lot to restore hope. And I even argued at the end of all that that these 276 men aboard this ship have changed, that God has finally broke them, uh, that they are finally willing to listen to Paul and his message. And I argued that this meal they ate is actually, this breaking of bread signified the change. Uh, that hope was restored because these men really, in essence, were exercising a form of faith, uh, and that the bread was a symbol of Jesus, even if it was not properly speaking a, a formal Eucharistic communion service. So in a sense, they, they've all partaken of the same Christ that Paul serves. They're seeking his protection. They're trying to come under the protection of Paul's God, and whether they fully understand and embrace the gospel is debatable, but they have decided to cling to Paul and to his God. Now, when that happens, just like the spanking scenario, it can be tempting to think that maybe you can avoid the hard stuff. That maybe you can avoid the spanking, or in this case, the shipwreck. And I think you know what I mean. When you're walking in repentance, and, and you make a, a, even a minuscule step of faith, which to you feels like a big deal, right? 
in your heart of hearts, you're kind of hoping that this gets chalked up as brownie points and maybe God won't make you walk through the consequences of your bad decisions after all. And I think we all sometimes find ourselves bargaining with God secretly. Like, if I just correct my path in the following ways and show some serious contrition, maybe even shed a few tears, that helps, God will see that, and maybe he'll let me off the hook. But God's plan is much more like Georgia with the wooden spoon. There's no avoiding the hardship. The shipwreck is inevitable. Now, some of you are looking at me like, I can't believe the pastor would insinuate such a thing. I'm only saying it because I know I do it. Um, I suspect you all do on some level. And I'm willing to bet this was the mindset of some of the sailors on this ship. You know, we just showed some serious faith by, by cutting off our security. We have let go and let God, right? We tossed off the lifeboat. We got rid of all the extra food. Surely that must count for something in God's eyes. Maybe God will allow for a soft landing on account of our show of faith. But the shipwreck is unavoidable. In God's warning, they must run aground. And their show of faith doesn't change that. There will be no salvation apart from the crash. There are still consequences for bad decisions. And aside from that, following Jesus is not a life of ease and comfort anyway. Following Jesus doesn't mean the crashes don't come. I mean, he was the one that promised us hardship and told us it's a cross to bear, right? So the shipwreck must come, and it will be a final test of sorts to see how the new faith of these men, as expressed a little bit in that meal with Paul, their trust in Paul's God, how is it going to hold up under the strain? They were okay with severing the lifeboat. They were okay with tossing the wheat overboard. They were able to demonstrate faith when it was dark and the storm was raging and the rocks were all around and they had nowhere else to turn. It's like they say, there are no atheists in foxholes, but what happens when land is so close that you can smell it? What happens when the thing you've been praying for so desperately, through tears, seems safely within reach? I think it's amazing how quickly people forget their fears. The scene of the crash, the the actual collision here, reveals how easy it is to slip back into old habits. Safety tends to lead to complacency, which tends to lead to backsliding. Now, the morning started off in a very promising way. They already had breakfast, right? We established that last week. And then they let go of their security blankets, the food and the lifeboat. They're gone. And as the sun comes up, they see what they've been praying for this entire time. It says, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. So their first step of faith, the eating breakfast and tossing the the, the leftovers, right? that was initially rewarded in a sense, right? The, the, The sun comes up and they see land. And they have no idea what the place is, but it has a beach and a bay. What more could you ask for? A bay is, by definition, a body of water that's kind of enclosed, right? Meaning that it's sheltered from the wind and the high waves of the open sea. This is exactly what they've been praying for, but had given up actually hoping for at one point. I I mentioned last week how Captain Pollard, after the whale attack, had avoided the nearby islands because there was a rumor that the inhabitants were cannibals, right? Nobody asks that question here at this point. They're going to take whatever they can get, right? Right? 
In fact, they make one last move of faith and they cut off the anchors. That's a literal declaration that nothing is going to stop them now, right? This is four anchors they had dropped and they just cut them loose. They basically just cut the brake lines. And it says that they loosened the ropes that tied the rudders. That's yet another extreme step. Look, I'm no sailor, all right? Uh, But I know that the rudder is how you turn the stupid boat, right? And they've thrown away the cargo, the tools, the lifeboat, the food, the anchors. All they have left is the ship itself, which again is barely holding together. And that means the last remaining element of control that they have is the steering. And they just eliminated that too. I used to drive an 88 Honda Accord. It was my first car. That many, many issues and was eventually retired, but I would still gladly take it back over the red Honda I'm driving now. (laughs) One of its many charms was that it had a very steady leak in the power steering fluid. And I often found myself steering that boat, and it was like a boat, with sheer brute strength. And it also had an issue with the carburetor. It had lots of issues with the carburetor, but it made it lose power, which meant that I had to rev it at stoplights Uh, so that the engine wouldn't cut out and just die on me. But at other times, it would run so hot and so strong that it didn't want to stop at all. And even if you were just sitting there, you know, in drive, not touching the gas at all, it would want to go about 10 miles an hour. So it was a struggle, okay? Wonderful car. I called it Rita. And I'm thinking that even at her worst, Rita had more control than this ship. This thing has no steering at all now. It just has a foresail. So it can drive at full speed, basically, but with no control and no brakes. It's the beach or bust. It's just like the speed movies with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock from the 90s, right? This is quite literally their Jesus-take-the-wheel moment, when you think about it. They're trusting him to take them to the shore. They're literally trusting the wind, the same wind that has been antagonizing them since they left Myra. And they're now trusting that wind, or more importantly, the one who controls it. So, this is a beautiful act of faith. But what happens if you hand the wheel to Jesus, and he runs it into a wall? It can certainly feel like that sometimes. Verse 41. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Well, so much for stepping out in faith. Again, this is where they were maybe hoping that Paul's God would show some leniency. Uh, You know, we we acted in faith, remember? And now you're supposed to save us. So just go ahead and miracle us over there to that beach right there, and that would be wonderful. But sometimes Jesus seems to prefer the crash. He likes to shake us up and see what's inside. So... Jesus takes the wheel and crashes the ship smack dab into a coral reef. The Greek here is kind of ambiguous. The word is actually a place between two seas, so it could be any kind of barrier. It could be a sandbar. That's kind of unlikely. The bigger issue in any bay or inlet is not hitting a soft sandbar, possibly, but either the rocks or a coral reef, which is basically the same thing. In one James Bond book, I've read to Georgia, that's how the villain tries to kill Bond. He ties him to the back of a boat and tries to drag him over the coral reef. You know, it's a nasty, dangerous thing. They're they're, they're sharp and, and they're hard and they're huge. 
So Jesus crashes the boat into this coral reef, and it won't budge. And ironically, while the front of the boat is wedged in the reef, the back finally says, I've had enough, and just starts falling apart in the waves. Now, in the words of Bob Ross, now's time to make some big decisions, right? This is the ugly moment of truth, the testing ground to see how these men will handle this newfound faith, this reliance on Paul's God. They are thrust into an emergency situation, one that they knew was coming because they'd been warned, but now suddenly the clock is ticking, right? You, You can't go backward. You can't stay here. Something has to happen right now. This is Jesus putting the squeeze on them. He loves doing that. Amen? And now they have to make a snap decision. When Jesus steers you into the reef, you have to decide what you really believe and who you really trust, don't you? Are you going to follow through and trust him through the crash, or will the crisis expose the weakness of your faith? Well, let's see. 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. I think this is kind of, for me, the focal point of this little passage. And it's also the hardest pill to swallow in the passage. But it's very instructive. This is the verse where everything seems to go backwards a little bit. Because there's been a general trajectory throughout this voyage. What started with a bad decision got got quickly worse, right? Everyone was lost and starving and completely devoid of hope. And when they finally hit rock bottom which always seems to take much longer than it should, Uh, they finally decided to let God be God, and they started listening to what his messenger had to say. Now, if I were writing this story as a work of fiction, right? If, If this were me writing the Pure Flix version where everything is neat and tidy and stars Kevin Sorbo as Paul, right? This is not a verse I would want to include because it's an ugly verse. And... It makes you wonder how these guys could have forgotten so quickly. These are the men who have been traveling with Paul for months, ever since Caesarea, right? They've played cards together. They've talked together. They've probably worked on the ship together. It occurred to me only yesterday that it's possible that the only reason that they still have at least a sail left is they happen to have a tent maker in Paul on board. But I'm assuming Paul's become close to these guys. That's what he does. So these are the same men who, responding to Paul, had yanked the sailors off the lifeboat and then cut it loose by faith because Paul said to. They had trusted Paul yesterday and they trusted him enough to do something crazy. These are the same men who broke bread with Paul just this morning. A few short hours ago. And yet now, their first instinct in this crisis is to slit his throat before abandoning ship. Paul, their friend, and the good luck charm, the only reason they're still alive. How are you going to do them like that? There's a Russian parable, of course it's Russian, where a scorpion asks a frog for a ride across a river, and the frog says, how can I trust you not to sting me? And the scorpion says, well, it's in my best interest not to sting you because I can't swim. So the frog agrees, and halfway across the river, the scorpion stings him. And the frog, as he's dying, asks, like, why did you do that? Now we're both going to die. And the scorpion says, because I'm a scorpion, and that's what scorpions do.
These Roman soldiers are doing what Roman soldiers do. Roman soldiers enforce the law. They bring glory to the empire, mostly by killing stuff. But they're about to kill the good luck charm, the anti-Jonah. Probably the nicest guy on board and the only reason you're alive. It's a wicked idea, but it's also a foolish one. Why would they do this? Why is this even on their mind? Well, on one hand, I think it's worth observing that they didn't single Paul out in that verse, right? Remember, Paul's not the only prisoner on this voyage. There are several prisoners in custody traveling along, and in fairness, we don't know what these guys are in for. Could be murder, could be embezzlement, could be treason, could be desertion or dishonoring the emperor, any number of things, right? And maybe they had appealed to Caesar, like Paul, because they thought that he would grant clemency or something like that. But then again, maybe their crimes were so heinous, and the reason they're being transported to Rome is so that Rome can make a nationwide example of them. That's also entirely possible. So I'm willing to bet, however, that none of them are here for preaching the gospel without a license or anything, right? (laughs) Paul's unique in that respect. So we have no reason to think these guys were simply just misunderstood or being persecuted for righteousness' sake or anything like that. I'm thinking some of these prisoners were bad eggs. I think this boat is a little more like Con Air than like a church retreat, right? So I can understand the impulse on a practical level. You don't want to let the bad guys get away. I get that. And I'm also guessing this is probably exactly the kind of efficiency that Rome would expect, that your emperor would demand, It was probably the technical proper protocol on paper because whatever you do, you don't want to let the prisoners escape. You either bring us the prisoner or bring me their head. If you lose a prisoner, you might as well run away yourself because it's better not to show up at all than to show up empty-handed. Rome was not particularly merciful. If you misplaced prisoners, prison guards had ample motivation to do their job well. If you will recall, the Philippian jailer nearly committed suicide because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. Paul stopped him just in the nick of time. Or even earlier in the book when Peter escaped with the help of the angel, right? The guards were all executed the following day. So I can understand this on a professional level. I can. Letting the prisoners get away would mean saving your life from the sea only to lose it in Rome. So there might be an understandable sense of panic. It's also their professional training kicking in. These are lifelong military men. They know the deal. So yes, again, I I get this on a human level. The scorpion is still a scorpion, and the Roman soldier is still a Roman soldier. And they can't afford to make exceptions, so Paul's neck is on the chopping block as well. But the more I think about it, the more it still bothers me, because I want to believe that these are not scorpions, they are men. And not only that, these men were different, I thought. They had really changed. It's one thing to say, I understand a scorpion still a scorpion. These men are men who had met Jesus through Paul. They had partaken of the bread with Paul. And if these men were no longer their old selves, as I said last week, I want to believe that they would not so quickly return to their old ways. That they would know that the situation has changed and that the miracle of this voyage was still real. I've been saying for a few weeks that this boat is like a microcosm of Rome in a lot of ways. And in many ways it's a good picture of our own world. It's cosmopolitan. It is diverse in its languages, in its religions, in its socioeconomic statuses. And I've made the case that 
Likewise, we're all in the same boat together, right? That as Christians, we should be helpful where we can and give the best advice that we can without undermining the earthly authorities. I said that we should be patient, that we should pray for our neighbors, and that God, in his time, will break our neighbors and open them to hear the gospel. And when we wrapped up last week, it seemed like we had really gotten somewhere, like these guys had really changed, that these 276 men had had an encounter with the Jesus who Paul serves, and they had decided to trust him. So what happened that made the Roman soldiers forget all that within just a couple hours? How can they go from following Paul's orders to considering stabbing him in the back? How do they get so far off track? Well, I think several things are happening in their minds here, but they all relate to the fact that they see the land. It's right there. It's within reach. And carnal man, in his rebellion against God, will grab onto anything, as long as it means he is back in control of his own destiny. They don't even know what this island is. But the fact that it seems so close, the fact that the danger seems to be past, and the fact that the ordeal is almost over, makes it hard to remember how desperate you were last night. And it's hard to keep a perspective on reality. For weeks, everyone on this voyage has been expecting death imminently. And when they reach the utter end of all hope, they, in their desperation, turn to Paul's God. And they would have given anything for a second chance at life. But it's hard to remember how dark your fears were once you see the land. Last night in the dark, the storm and the sea and the rickety boat were the only real things in your world. But when you see land... Suddenly, Rome becomes real again. Your job, and your commander, and your emperor, and your parents, and your wife, and your children back home, and your concerns for worldly justice, and your career advancement, and being able to afford a home. Jesus seems a lot less real once you're out of trouble. And old habits die hard. So these guys who had broken bread with Paul, who essentially went to the Billy Graham crusade and said the sinner's prayer and had a really emotional experience at the Christian camp one summer, right? They quickly forget all that because land is in reach. Never mind, Jesus. We got this. Thanks. I think people forget emotional experiences. I think that's true of unbelievers, but it can be true of professing Christians as well, because I think for too many professing Christians, emotional events are all their faith consists of. It's funny, Paul uses the word shipwreck two other places. In 2 Corinthians 11, he claims that he was literally shipwrecked three times, two of which are not recorded in as much you know, in, in detail in Acts. But in 1 Timothy 1, he says that some people have rejected the faith instead of holding on to it and have therefore made a shipwreck of their faith. This is not a positive euphemism, you'll notice. And in fact, for the individuals in question in that book, Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says he's handing them over to Satan so that they'll learn not to blaspheme. It's pretty hardcore. Shipwrecks are ugly. The only thing worse than a literal shipwreck is is a shipwreck of faith. And I would argue that these soldiers are facing both. What's real? 
And what can you put your hope in? Jesus or the land on the other side of the bay? Which would you put your faith in? I've probably told this story before, but when I was in high school, I went on a missions trip to Spain. It was more of a retreat than anything, I guess. But we stayed in a town called Rota. It's on the Bay of Cadiz. Cadiz, southwest. The bay seemed so small from the cliff when you were standing up there in the backyard of this house. So one day, me and a couple buddies made the decision to swim out into it uh, because there was a boat floating out there that had an American flag on it, just a little dinghy out there. And we decided, oh, let's go see who this, who this guy is and what he's doing. And so we swam all the way out into the bay. And we made it, barely. And the guy let us on board, and he offered us drinks, and he explained, oh, yeah, I'm on a trip from Florida, whatever, I'm just kind of passing through. And, you know, we felt like we'd imposed on him long enough. We decided, oh, it's time to go. And we start to swim back to the land, which seemed so close. (laughs) But it wasn't really that close. And if it weren't for the fact that there was a naval base there uh, that had a fence built halfway out into the bay, we would have all drowned because we were all suffering from cramps and we were too far for anyone to hear us. So yeah, the land was real, but that didn't really help much. And I would probably be dead today if it weren't for God's mercy and leaving us some fence posts out there. These soldiers are no different. They think they're safe now, and they're like so many people in this world, people who pray and turn to God during the storm, only to forget him in the morning once they see safety. Our entire culture does this. They not only stand on the shoulders of giants, they'll stand on God's shoulders and never stop to consider that the fact that they're standing on his shoulders is the only reason they can see the land to begin with. They would never see the harbor without his common grace. I think this world is full of people who take God's mercy for granted, who never consider the fact that safety, the safety that they enjoy, might only be because God is protecting and leading his people who happen to be on the same boat with them. People who have heard of Jesus and maybe even experienced his goodness, but forget him the instant that they're able to get back the illusion of control. And in forgetting their fear of the sea, they forget the fear of the Lord. Now, None of this should really surprise us. It's basically what Jesus talked about in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. There's the seeds that fall among the thorns and get choked by the concerns of the world. Some of them fall on rocky soil. They get scorched after they spring up. I've been trying all summer to raise grass in rocky soil at my house. It has not been going well. And these soldiers are likewise on the rocks, literally. And the question is whether they will continue to trust Paul's God or not, now that they can see land? Sure sounds like the answer is no. It sounds like the earthly worries are overwhelming them. But God in his mercy doesn't let them make this mistake. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. If nothing else, the change in Julius is real. He believes Paul and he remembers God's promises. So he stops his men from committing murder and he even lets the prisoners swim to shore on their own because he trusts Paul's God to make everything all right. 
And Paul didn't have to lift a finger or say a word in his own defense here. One thing these soldiers didn't account for was that even the prisoners were under Paul's protection. And the same guy who had been praying for the soldiers was praying for the prisoners too. And in the end, while it's not pretty, they all make it. Some are swimming, some are just drifting, but they have nothing but the clothes on their backs and the scraps of wood they were holding on to. But they're all on dry land, and God has preserved them. No prisoners have escaped, and now these same soldiers will get to hear more about Jesus. God's mercy to Paul was also his mercy to the Roman soldiers. So what I would say in closing is that your prayers are effective, beloved. Shipwrecks may be unavoidable, and the ones you pray for may even be plotting against you, but Jesus is better than dry land. And he's much more solid and much more real. So keep praying for everyone on the boat and trust him that his gospel will still go forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these adventures that you brought Paul through. We thank you that in spite of this mess of a shipwreck where everything went absolutely wrong, that 276 men survived without a single loss. An astonishing statistic. Lord, we thank you that while the shipwrecks in our lives are, are, are inevitable, Lord, We do hit hard times, Lord, and we do have a hard time keeping a perspective on reality, Lord. The issues of the world, the solidness of the ground around us seems a lot more real than you, Lord, in our weakness. And Lord, even those of us who've been professing faith for years, decades, Lord, we we can make similar mistakes and rash decisions in the heat of the moment. Lord, forgive us for our weakness of faith, Lord, for forgetting your promises, for forgetting your kindness. Lord, help us to love those of us in this world, Lord, who haven't met you, do not not know you, rebel against you, Lord, even the ones who want to stab us in the back. Help us to love them, Lord, and to continue praying for them. We pray that your gospel would continue to go forward. Help us to be a part of that, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever.